Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Oh, here we go. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, in chat. Hey, uh, recording live from FYP Studios East and West, transmitting across the internet. This is episode 249 of Registry Matters. As you can tell, Larry, I'm still getting over a cold, which is why we didn't record Saturday night. I still have credit in my head, which brings up a really interesting conversation. Why does this happen? But first, how are you? I'm doing awesome. This is a very lovely time to record at 2 o'clock, 2.15 in the afternoon. Yeah, it's, uh, what, 4 o'clock here? It's a little after 4 here. Um, so, yeah, like you end up with all this crud and junk in your head and it changes the whole acoustic structure of your face and then your voice sounds different. And when I wake up, I actually sound like Rick. Wow. <laughs> that's quite, I've recorded, that's quite a difference. I recorded something early and it was like, you've been listening to F and it sounded just like that, that 2 AM DJ with the super sweet sultry voice. So, alrighty. Well, I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad we're able to get an episode in prior to Christmas. And absolutely. Uh, t tell me, you have something to do with a kabuki machine with us tonight, don't you? Yes, we're going to talk about a case out of the state of Oklahoma decided by the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. And it actually went up to the U.S. Supreme Court about polygraphs and treatment. And I think you're just going to enjoy this case because you're such a fan of the art of polygraph. Is, is it an art or a science? Anyway, you're such a fan it can't of that. Be it can't be a science it can't and i, I art isn't be in the eye of the beholder i guess so i may maybe it's art to somebody oh i hate that thing so bad um but make sure that you go over to youtube and press like and subscribe and all that and if you have a podcast app that lets you do a review please write a review in your podcast app i'd subscribe to a new podcast that is pretty new and there are literally no reviews on it and signing you but please do that and that would uh Send us some love if you can't be a supporter financially. Uh, what else are we going to do tonight? Give us the rest of the rundown. Well, we've got a group of questions. Uh, one was sort of a variation of a discussion that I turned into a question because it was asked. And then we've got some submissions of questions that are quite good. And we've got the case from the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And we've got some articles if we get to them not likely we will but they're there just in case all right well then let us dive into question numero uno and it says hi andy my brother gave me your email my son has uh been ready to leave jail since july and we can't find a place for him our houses are too close to places or we have kit or or we have kids in them i finally found a small condo in atlantic city new jersey for interstate compact to approve Georgia sent an address to New Jersey, but they denied it basically because uh, Mr. Moore from Georgia said to deny it. It is a beach. Like really the beach is off limits. So the whole coast of the United States would be off limits. So we want to challenge this. Do you have any information for us to begin? A man from the interstate compact, uh, Georgia called me after my emails to New Jersey and he even couldn't say why the beach was denied. You know, ki kids are known to congregate at beaches, by the way. And uh, he sidestepped it with other excuses like it's near a bike shop. If you have any information to help, please let me know. We have tried halfway houses. Some were denied. Others have no room. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that beaches would just be classified as places where children are known to congregate. So they're going to be like, nope, can't live near a beach. Well, are you asking me what Jerry should do? I am absolutely. That's why you are here, because I'm just here to tell them that they're dumb. But you're going to give us some sort of rational reason to to explain what's going on here. Well, I'm dubious, but I've always learned, not always, but I've learned through the years that just because I'm dubious doesn't mean that I'm that I'm correct. But I'm dubious it went down the way that it was described here. Because I believe that New Jersey gets to make its own decision. If Georgia had not wanted that address approved, they could have easily just not submitted it. They could have said, we did Google Earth or whatever you call it, and we're not even going to submit that address. Right. 
So, so I'm dubious that it went down that way. I think we've had these episodes before about interstate compact and how states would prefer that you keep your offenders, particular certain categories of offenders, because of the community heightened community sensitivity of those offenders and what would happen if there were a violation or reoffense or something. So I have a feeling that when it got to New Jersey, and I, folks, this is speculation because I'm not on the backside of this, but I have a feeling that New Jersey was looking for a reason to deny, and they communicated that the proposed address was near the beach or on the beach or whatever. And I have a feeling that they were the instigator of the denial. And I Are you suggesting, this, Larry, like the receiving state doesn't want you there? They're not open arm welcoming you in? Absolutely, I'm suggesting <laughs> that. As, as I've, I've discussed before, if you're supervising an offender that didn't come there, that really doesn't have any attachment to your state per se, you know, they didn't commit their offense there most of the time, they're compacting in because they have a resource there for residents, but they not establish that state. They would rather supervise their own people that they're stuck with. And if they're smart, they'd want to get rid of as many of their own as they could as well. But you would want to keep those from coming because if there's is, is a transgression, the camera comes rolling in you would rather not be put in that uncomfortable position of saying how lax you were supervising. You remember the case in California where the person held a captive for how long was it in, in a enclosure in the backyard? Oh, like 20 years. Yeah. So no one wants that type of publicity about how did this happen on your watch? Well, if you don't ever let the person come there, it cannot happen on your watch. Right. There was that guy in, in Chicago named Castro. He had three women in his house. They were like chained to the floor. I'm not saying he was a PFR, but just like you don't want this in your backyard for sure. I'm with you. So I'm thinking that Mr. Moore received an electronic communication from New Jersey denying the address. And I'm doubting that Mr. Moore encouraged it. I really am. What they can do about it, it's very <laughs> dubious about if anything they can do about it because you begin with the premise you do do not have a right to be supervised in any place other than where you were convicted, assuming that you have supervision as a part of your sentence. The state that imposed the sentence, they can't let you out of prison and say, we're banishing you, we won't supervise you here, you've got five years of supervision, but get out of our state. They have to supervise you. But it's a privilege to go to any other state to be supervised. Right. Because you didn't commit your infraction there, and they're doing the supervision as a courtesy to the state for the state where you were convicted. So the question would be what would you file? Where would you file it? Who would you name as a defendant in your filing? And what judge, what level of court would you file it? Would it be a federal case? Or would it be a state of New Jersey case? And that if you she could call attorneys till she's blue in the face. <laughs> right. And she wouldn't she wouldn't find an attorney that would want to touch this because sure. there's not a lot of case law on this issue in terms of if they decline you, what can you do? The easiest thing you can do is to try to keep coming up with new addresses. Now, there are people sitting there saying, well, Larry, that's not so easy because people don't have all these options, and I realize that. But trying to come up with another address is easier than filing what's going to be a years-long legal challenge and waiting for the courts to try to sidestep it and dismiss it, saying that we don't have subject matter jurisdiction over this, and it would get very ugly, very expensive, and you'd probably spin your wheels for a very long time. So the simplest thing to do although it's not necessarily simple, would be to try to find a suitable address and resubmit the application to New Jersey. You're also going to piss off a bunch of people and then they're going to, if it's a foot short of where they may cut you uh, just some sort of slack at some point in time, no. And then when you get there, they're going to be pissed off at you and they're going to put the screws to you when you get there. They very well could do that. But if you came to me as what I think of myself as at least a crackpot legal professional, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't even begin to know how to unravel this. 
okay, I would be tempted to want to file in federal court, but this is an agreement between the states, uh, interstate compact by its very nature. That is essentially a treaty among states. Right. So, so you've got agreement that the states have made, so the federal courts are not going to want to get involved in it, I don't believe. So you file it in federal court and you get dismissed on a 12B6 motion. And then you file it in a New Jersey state court. The New Jersey state court says, well, you know, we, we're not the one. We don't, we didn't have anything to do with this. This is all Georgia. I mean, the, uh, she says that uh, Georgia's told us to deny it. So, I mean, it's got to be, you file your claim in Georgia. And you file it in Georgia. Georgia's, uh, their defense is going to be, well, we didn't turn him down. New Jersey filed, uh, turned him down. You yeah. see how it's going to turn into a circular thing? Totally. It's going to be a round robin of blaming the other people. <laughs> And, and you're so, going to spend days and days and days and days and days trying to track down who to call next. Of Well, they, they denied it. Well, who's they? That would be so, I wish I could be of more help, particularly for the holidays, but keep trying to come up with a suitable address. That's the best I can do. Or cash out all your 401ks, your IRAs. <laughs> Contact me directly. I will try to put together... I do have a fairly significant attorney in New Jersey. Uh, I will try to, we'll put our heads together and try to come up with a strategy, but be prepared to spend a whole lot of money and be prepared to be willing to lose that whole lot of money. Because mm -hmm. uh, uh, you mentioned this earlier, can you guarantee any level of success? You cannot. Can any, can any attorney, not just you? You cannot. It's unethical to promise an outcome. You can you can convey to people that they have a strong case and you can be as strong, you can even suggest that they have an exceedingly strong case and that they should win. But if you tell someone, I guarantee you're going to win, you're, you're breaching the code of professional conduct. I see. Uh, all right. Well then let's uh, continue on. People are yelling at me about, Hey, there's another interstate compact question. Hey, it comes up a lot. Leave me alone. So here's question number two, Larry. I like how this starts. You two drive me nuts. You tell us not to talk to the police and to consult with an attorney. Both of you must live in some kind of dreamland where everybody has an attorney on speed dial. And it's apparent that you have no idea what it's like to have guns all around your head and the distress that causes when the police enter your house. Beyond that, how in the hell can the regular mortals hire an attorney when I've heard Larry say how difficult it is? You are a very big hypocrite there, Mr. Larry. What are we supposed to do? <laughs> that was the one that I that was generated through a conversation with one of our supporters I was having. And, and he said, I'm listening to you babble about this and tell people don't do this and don't do that. And then you're saying that you can't find an attorney to, that can give you the satisfaction you're looking for in your injury case. So what do you expect us to do? And I said, you just gave me a great question for the podcast. <laughs> oh, it's totally true. I mean, you and I have beat, beat this around before and I'm just like, I, I even if the people in chat are all very smart individuals, but none of us have the expertise to go. So, Mr. Attorney, what do you think about this? Even when I went and saw my attorney about getting off of uh, probation in the registry, he did not like me asking him questions like I was now, you know, walking around in his turf in his uh, playground and he was not happy with me. Unfortunately, that's the reality and even though I work in this business or profession, uh, hopefully it's more of a profession and a business, but I've had that same disappointment with my injury case. I really have. Uh, I've struggled with communication, with getting simple questions answered in terms of strategy and how we structure the demand letter. I end up having to rewrite a segment of the demand letter. I ended up having to put stuff in the demand letter that was readily available had they done the research through my injuries, you know, through the uh, medical records. Uh, I just am very frustrated that even as a semi-colleague in the business that I didn't get the type of attention that I felt that I deserved and the level of respect I think I deserved. And I don't know what to tell people because if I can't navigate through this with the knowledge I have, I don't know what you do. It's your attorney, the one I remember he was giving you uh, pushback, but that's no different than when you're at a doctor's office, when the doctor looks at your MRI or your, or your x-ray, and the doctor says, you need to have a hip replacement. 
does the doctor <laughs> does, does the doctor get all flustered if you say, well, are there any alternatives in a more conservative approach to treatment? And there'd be no reason for them to get offended. And in fact, it's very common you go get a second opinion. When a doctor recommends something significant, it's very common you go get a second opinion. And I've not known any doctor to lecture me because I got a second opinion and saying, hey, if you don't trust me, but that's what the lawyers do. They say, well, if you don't have confidence in me, well, I mean, maybe you need to find somebody else. And of course, my answer to that is, is perhaps I do. <laughs> uh, but it's very frustrating. And I don't know what the answer is because I certainly can't help everybody sit on their on their attorney interviews when they're selecting an attorney. But if they push back, it's a it's a real warning sign. If they push back on your questions, you're supposed to be a partner. I think you were at one of the conferences when old William Quinn from Georgia attended and he did a workshop. It was it was at an Arsenal conference, and he said representation is a partnership between the client and the attorney, and if they're not going to be respectful and treat you as a partner in the in the whatever the pursuit is, whether it's injury, whether it's criminal, whether it's tax uh, overpay underpayment, whatever it is. If they're not going to work in partnership with you and be respectful and hear what you have to say and your ideas, then perhaps you've got the wrong attorney. But then the question becomes, how do you disengage? Yeah, I'm and in how that same do you? Dilemma. But I mean, you, to to even find the the first attorney that will talk to you, forget about whether you can like work together. So it took you a, a lot of effort to find one that would be willing to talk to you about your case. Now you also have to couple that with, we have to have a partnership where we can uh, have dialogue back and forth and just throw ideas around. But no, you want us to find, the, <laughs> we're looking for the unicorn attorney, Larry, and we can't find them. Well, you know, I've learned my next time if I need an attorney, and I probably will if I live long enough, I'm going to ask straight out, do you find it offensive if you have a participatory client who right. wants to have answers and who has lots of questions? Because I may not be the client for you because I'm not likely to change. <laughs> so that's going to be my next attempt when, when I need another attorney. And on the flip side, Larry, when I do tech work for people and they, you may have seen the email that I sent out today where I gave like an executive summary and then there's 50 pages of details behind it. A lot of people don't even want to engage. It's just like, can you just fix it, please? There are those clients who, when they have an injury, for example, they would all want to know when they're going to get their check, how much, when they, can they start spending their money. But I have a greater interest in my case because my injuries are permanent. And I want to know how to maximize what I'm going to get because it's reduced my capacity to earn money. So I'm not happy just to get a quick payoff. I'm in it for the long game. But a lot of people are, you're correct, they just want to know how quick I can cash out. I need some money, I need it. Now what is that, uh, J.D. Whitworth? I, I want my money now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I don't want to give them any free advertising. Those are very, very annoying commercials. Uh, all right, well then we will move along to question number three. And this one is from Sylvia. Hi, Larry and Andy. I hope you are having a good holiday season. Have you not heard about the weather coming, Larry, in the next handful of days? Like a guy in chat, he's in Colorado. He says that his temperature is dropping 40 degrees in the next uh, hour or something like that. Maybe I was 50 degrees in four hours, 50 degrees in four hours. That's I nuts. I heard about it. They're referring, it to, referring to it as, uh, I heard of the meteorologist using some term I haven't, I haven't been familiar with. But yeah, it's supposedly going to make it down the eastern side of our state, but it's not going to hit the metro very hard here. Ah, but yes, okay. it's going to be very cold. I think they're expecting 20s way down into Florida. Okay, yeah, it's going to be cold in Georgia too. All right, well then let me continue. So, uh, so it's a cold holiday season. It's going to be very cold on Christmas. Uh, but lately I have been reading a lot about the California constitutional right to privacy, which is closely related to the right to reputation that was brought up in the Pennsylvania case. Once a registrant in California receives a 1203, whatever, you know, 1203.4, which is an expungement or sealing of his record, should that person's information not be removed from the public Megan's Law website? I know this has been fought in courts, but it never addressed the actual right to privacy. It only addressed that the expungement will relieve the person of virtually all penalties and disabilities. 
And since the registry is not deemed punishment, this argument never succeeds. Yet, the right to privacy would be, in my opinion, have a lot more merit as one's conviction technically no longer exists, but yet it is disseminated on the World Wide Web inaccurately as an existing conviction. Would love to hear your thoughts on this one. And, um, <clears throat> oh, by the way, FYP. Well, it's a good question. Sylvia, I like it. Sylvia is educating me because my understanding and my thought was that they actually do that when you get that uh, expungement, that they actually do that. But apparently that is incorrect. Maybe I've got it confused with the certificate of rehabilitation where, you know, the attorney chance, well, named chance uh, that works with another organization that we're familiar with. Sure. He got the certificate of rehabilitation, but it's a really great question. And the answer is I am not aware of any litigation that has paralleled that what was decided by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court about the reputation. And I would say to Sylvia that this is an area where there needs to be some development. Uh, and since I'm on the legal team of a organization where we're looking for good solid cases, we would at least take a look at this. Uh, so uh, we can direct Sylvia to file a request for consideration for a case on the NARSL website. And It'll be submitted and it will make its way to me and I'll share it with our team and we'll see what we think. But yes, it should be that when you have an expungement and your record is sealed, that should restore you to privacy. It should. Do you, you see it as being something that might carry some weight? I do, because this is an evolving body of case law, as we've talked about so many times people didn't realize the harm that the mere act of being on the registry, even if you're not having to report in a register, apparently he's, that person is still having to register. But even if you're just simply listed and you're not reporting in, there's a lot of disabilities that go with it. And if you have been effectively just shy of being pardoned, I mean, this is not the same as a pardon, but if, if they're sealing your record and expunging it, and there's a public state-supported listing of your behavior it kind of neuters the effect of a of an expungement it really does how how would you say that's an expungement if the state of california is still disseminating registration information haven't we covered cases where people have been uh, something to the effect of their conviction has been overturned but they still end up on the registry uh, it's almost, i guess uh, one condition would be have you ever been on a registry before when you go to another state and they're like, well, yeah, but it was expunged. Yes, but were you on a registry? Yes, well, then you'll be on the registry here. Yes, we have. This is slightly different, but yes, we've covered that in the past. And you can have an example, if you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, you don't have a conviction. But in some states that is still considered, the evidence is there for you to get a not, what's called an NGI verdict, not guilty by insanity the underlying facts have been agreed to that, that they actually happened but you were not responsible because of lack of culpable mental status or inability to conform your conduct to law because of a mental disease or defect but you technically don't have a conviction so not having a conviction in and of itself is, is not enough to keep a person from having to register there are circumstances by which you can register <laughs> seems, it seems like if you're not convicted then you shouldn't be on it <laughs> so yeah you 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 look for too many technicalities what's wrong with yes you? yes me all right um okay so so something larry is not mr doom and gloom always you are not uh dr dr doom doom and gloom is that what i called you dr doom and gloom you did and and see i've tried to learn from that and christmas eve <laughs> eve eve i think we're three three days out or whatever it is from christmas i'm trying to be positive all right well then let's go on to number four we're at 25 minutes we're, we're doing well maybe we'll have time for that one other question in there uh, and this is question four from joanne and it says if a pfr with a federal offense access with intent to view cp is registered in a state that allows him to petition to be removed from tier one in 10 years 
would he file a petition to be removed from lifetime federal supervision at the same time? To the same court, how likely is it that he will be removed if he has a perfectly clean record for those 10 years? Does it even make sense to get off the registry but still under federal supervision for his entire life? Thanks. I listen to your show, all your shows, and am a Patreon supporter person. Thank you, Joanne, very much for your support on Patreon. I like this question because it gives me a chance to talk about there is no federal registry. So there be no <laughs> juris, there is no jurisdiction for the federal court to remove you from registration. So we don't have state-specific stuff here, but let's just pull a state out of thin air. So he's registered in Colorado, and he's under a federal conviction for CP. Well, there, since they're two different things, he's reporting to the registration authorities in Colorado, and they have the, the opportunity to prosecute him for failing to comply with any of the massive number of things. We probably should have picked Mississippi. It has even a, a larger list of things you have to do, including paying for community notification. Let's change it to Mississippi. You're, being reg you're registering in Mississippi rather than Colorado, one of these deep south states. And... You have all these disabilities or restraints of where you can live, where you can work, and you have uh, uh, every three months you have to pay for a new ID card in Mississippi, as I understand it. And you have all these things that could land you in a state prosecution and put you in a Tennessee prison for a long time. You absolutely, and I said misspoke, uh, Mississippi prison for a long time, you absolutely would want to get away from that threat. So if you're in a state that will allow you to petition for removal from the registry, you could not file that petition with a federal court because it doesn't have the jurisdiction. You're registering with that state. So you'd have to right. file that petition. And there would be no reason in the world I would ever think about if someone came to this office and said, gee, I'd like to petition off the registry, but I've got lifetime supervision. I'd say they're two, they're two unrelated things. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to tell you that, that the registration is worth your while because it carries felony penalties and long-term incarceration. And if we can get you off of that, we take some of the stress out of your life. Now, lifetime supervised release is something that you would file in federal court with the jurisdiction where the case is domiciled, either where it happened or it may have been transferred and jurisdiction taken over by another federal district, but you would file in the district court asking that the period of supervised release be, be reduced to the time served. If you've got lifetime my experience here in the District of New Mexico from the attorneys who practice in federal court, if you don't have 10 years in, they're not even going to consider removal from lifetime uh, supervision. Right. But, so, so I would say you would do both, but you wouldn't do them in the same court. If you can petition to get off the registry in 10, 10 years, you would file that in your proper state court. And you would certainly want to seek legal advice on both of these things, but the the uh, uh, filing for removal from termination of supervised release, you would want to have a different attorney that practices in federal court that knows the lay of the land there, and they would want to find out what the temperature is for cutting people loose, particularly by that, that judge, because some judges just don't cut anybody loose on, from PFR supervision, period. They just right. don't. Well, if you can find that information out, why would you want to file a petition if the attorney can come back and say, you know, here, Andy, I can file this removal with Judge Foskis. I picked that as a federal judge here. And Judge Foskis, as best I can find out, has never terminated a lifetime supervised PFR. Huh. I hate to take your money, but I'm willing to take your money, and we can give it a great shot. I'll have Dr. Moss Arby do a great uh, psychosexual eval. If we get a good report, I'll put together the best arguments I can about your success but it's a long shot. It'd be ten thousand dollars, please. That's 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 up for you because the same work has to be done. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I got you. The, Success or, or failure, the work has to be done. <laughs> so, and if you think you're going into it to fail, you actually have to do more work because you're trying to cover all the bases. If you're a decent attorney, you're trying to cover all the bases to up the odds. But if if I'm the client and an attorney tells me I can't find a single case in the legal community in this district where Judge Foskis has terminated lifetime supervision. I don't know that's the case with Judge Foskis. I've just pulled that out of air. But if, if an attorney tells you that and you want to spend your $10,000, isn't that on you? Absolutely. <laughs> so. 
You know, Larry, after all these episodes, you don't really paint the optimistic picture that the legal system is really in our court. Do you know that? I don't know what you mean by that. It's There are a whole lot of roadblocks and things to trip us up along this path. Not, not, not excluding the fact that we can't find attorneys that would help represent us that have skills in these areas. And then we're going to go up against a legal system that really does not want to do anything. Just like you're the judge you're talking about just now has never released anybody. We're just doomed. Well, that was a hypothetical. I don't know. That's I, I'm with judge you. Yeah. So, but, but yeah. I'm saying if an attorney tells you that you can't fault the attorney for the fact that you don't get released. If the attorney told you up front, I don't think this is going to work, but we're going to give it one heck of a go if you want to move forward. Yeah, I, I totally get that part too. I'm with you. Um, yeah, just you were saying earlier that you can't get an attorney, an attorney that gives you a guarantee of some sort like that. You're in, you're doomed or they're, they're committing a, uh, a professional conduct violation kind of thing. So you just have to know going in that you could be just throwing five or 10 grand down the toilet. And oftentimes that's the way these uh, early terminations go down is the, the court denies them and says, come back in three years, come back in five years. And, and to your attorney's credit, he was very reluctant to do yours because he wasn't sure that the odds were good. And that was, Oh, he said, no, yeah, he, <laughs> he said was, no, no odds. And, uh, and then the, the, without going into great detail, yeah. There was discussion that caused him to change his assessment of what the odds were. But those type of things don't happen very often. Yeah, you had you had an unusual situation where key people wanted you off supervision. And I still I, I still have no understanding as to why. Other other than like wouldn't you want a huge caseload of people that are not a problem? Why would you want to then have a collection of misfits that are a problem for you to deal with all the time? I agree with you. If I had a caseload, I would not want to get rid of people who are doing well because I'm going to get stuck with someone who's not. Correct. So, so then it doesn't make sense. So in this case, the, the squeaky wheel, the squeaky cog gets the oil or whatever. And I, I wasn't a squeaky cog. So why would you get rid of it? This one's working. I don't understand it. All right. Are you a first time listener of registry matters? Well then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, hit the subscribe button, and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. All right, so then let's move over to uh, the Kabuki machine. You ready for that? I hope this case. Now, when we go through this case, I know, even though you're not going to laugh, that the (laughs) audience is going to be laughing. Yes, I'm sure they're going to be all up in arms just giggling their butts off. Well, yeah, there may be some giggling, I'm sure. Uh, so you put this thing in here, and it's out of Oklahoma, from the, the Supreme Court of Oklahoma, even, and it's Benjamin Petty versus the state of Oklahoma. It involves my favorite thing, Larry. It involves the Kabuki machine. And if you are ready, I can't wait to hear your spin on this. Been uh, I've read it, and it's clear they violated his supervision because of the Kabuki machine. Can you admit that at least to start? Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> So that should uh, be right. that should be laughter number one. Oh, but, okay. So I should I should start already. <laughs> oh, wrong one. That one. No. No, no. Too soon. I'm saying that, that the, <laughs> the audience the audience should be laughing because I, I I cannot admit that. Uh, I will I will be able to set it up a little bit more and uh, hopefully we can get into it. But Mr. Petty certainly wasn't happy with the ruling of the Oklahoma Supreme Court, so he filed a cert petition with the United States Supreme Court. All right. And what did they do? Uh, they denied cert. And and that means they said no? 
they, yeah, they said, we don't want to review your case. And they, they need four people at the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, to accept it, right? Yes, they need four people that think there's something earth-shattering there of the, of the nine justices, and it's very difficult to get to that magic four. Do you have any indication on did three, did one, did none? Do you have any idea? They, they don't tell you that when, when okay. there's not the requisite number. They just say petition for cert denied. Interesting. All right. And uh, so this means that we will confine our discussion to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And let me set up some of the facts. On January 19th of 2018, uh, Petty pled. Wow, God, that's going to be hard to say. Petty pled. Petty pled guilty to forcible. Uh, I don't want to read all that stuff. Um, and blah, blah, blah. Um, on each count with all suspended. The sentences were ordered to run concurrently. And then on August 13th of 2020, the state filed a motion to revoke Petty's suspended sentence, alleging he violated special condition G, which required PFR counseling or equivalent as directed by probation or his treatment provider. Tell us, Larry, what happened next? Well, before I do that, because I know it's it's consternated you through the five years we've done this program that people get probation. But if you notice... Even in a relatively hard-nosed state like Oklahoma, he got probation for, for those charges. Yes, for yes, we, you see, he, that's why what what happened. The stuff you didn't want to read, which could have caused problems with our prison censors, but with all that, he still got a suspended, probated sentence. But what happened next at the conclusion of the uh, of the hearing? the district judge that sentenced him found that the state had proven the allegations in its motion to revoke by the requisite evidence standard, which was preponderance of the evidence, and he revoked his suspended sentence in full. And five days later, the district court resumed the revocation hearing, citing time constraints from the previous setting, and further sentenced Petty to three more years of mandatory post-imprisonment, post, yeah, post-imprisonment supervision the state of Oklahoma special supervision conditions for PFRs. And it is from this order that Petty raised the following issues. First, Petty was denied due process of law and a fair hearing by the state's use of <clears throat> polygraph results to support revocation of his suspended sentence. Number two, Petty's denial and inability to detail the original offenses did not violate his treatment participation rules and conditions of probation. Three, Petty's revocation hearing was rendered fundamentally unfair by the district court's denial of the requested continuance necessary to guarantee appellate's due process rights to present expert testimony in his defense. These are a lot of hard syllables to say together, Larry. Number four was alternatively, denial of the requested continuance robbed appellate of adequate time to repair his defense, resulting in state-induced ineffective assistance of counsel at the revocation hearing. And lastly, as Petty's concurrent suspended sentence were revoked in full, the district court lacked authority to impose additional rules and conditions of probation or for mandatory post-imprisonment supervision. I understand that he wrote to Narsaw Larry, requesting an amicus brief in support of his cert petition. What did the Narsaw legal team think about his case? And you may continue, sir. Oh, did you play it? <laughs> oh, shit. I turned it off. Yes, I did play it. I'm sorry. I turned <laughs> off where it was playing to you. Yes, it did play. So you can laugh and continue. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, not much. Uh, uh, we didn't think much about it. And there really wasn't even time if we had thought much about it because of the close proximity of his request and when it went to the Supreme Court conference. But yeah, we weren't, we weren't optimistic. <sighs> um, so let's look at another issue regarding the Kabuki machine. Can you uh, detail some things about it? Sure. The record shows that the polygraph test results were not used to revoke his suspended sentence. Evidence was presented that Petty had taken a polygraph test and that he had denied his crime of conviction in addition to polygraph results indicating potential deception. Petty was identified as a treatment failure but giving the opportunity to attempt treatment with another provider. However, Petty continued to deny his crime of conviction and deny any criminal sexual behavior and was ultimately deemed a treatment failure by the second provider. 
Petty's repeated denial of his crime of conviction resulted in his second treatment failure and the basis for the present revocation, not the fact that he failed the two polygraph examinations. Now, I, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to dig into this one a little bit. Why can he not deny his original claim? Well, he could only that he pled guilty. He could have conceivably gone to trial. I know people have gone to trial and been convicted, and they get in the same dilemma because, as a matter of law, they've been found guilty. But he could have conceivably asked his attorney about doing an Alford plea, and there, under the Supreme Court ruling in North Carolina versus Alford. It's been recognized by the highest court in the land that people plead guilty sometimes, although they're not guilty, because it's in their interest to do so. And possibly if he had done an offered plea, he could he could say, I've never admitted the crime. But you can't go in and tell the judge you're guilty and then turn around and say, I'm not guilty. I didn't do this stuff because one of the conditions was that he have treatment, that he, that he participate in complete treatment. And that's inconsistent with saying you didn't do anything you need treatment for. I so struggle with this because if if you're not guilty of what they're accusing you of and they're threatening 7,000 years in prison, so you're like, fine, I'll admit to some of these things. And then the polygraph person tells you you have to admit all these things. Like You are really in stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, according to the recitation of facts here, he was denying any sexual wrongdoing, not just some, and he pled guilty to sexual wrongdoing, and therefore he cannot maintain steadfastly that he's innocent of all any and all sexual misconduct because he pled guilty to it. He might have been able to if he had done an offered plea. That's a question for his attorney at the time when he was in plea negotiations. Will you let me? Will they let me do an offered plea? Sometimes the prosecution won't accept an offered plea because. The victims need to hear that admission that you did this ugly thing to them. And that's part of, you know, the victim's advocate has worked with the victim prior to the court. And the victim has made it clear that I want to hear him. I want to hear this person admit that they did this ugly thing. So sometimes the prosecution won't allow that type of plea. And if we move on over to the next issue, issue number two, you're probably going to say something along the same lines. Uh, I will indeed. You know, he can't have it both ways. You know, he can't plead guilty and then deny that the offense occurred. And it's clear from the record that Petty knew from the beginning that he had to participate in and not fail out of PFR treatment. Specifically, Petty's special condition G requires that he participate as directed by the probation officer or service provider. Petty failed to do so. He has thus not established that he was revoked for anything other than a violation of special condition G. Now you're going to tell me that I'm impossible, aren't you? Oh, you are totally impossible that you can't admit that he was revoked because of <laughs> he was he was revoked because of the lack of the kabuki machine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I keep saying that because the evidence doesn't doesn't support it. Yes, indirectly, had there been no kabuki machine he would never have been brought to court because he would have gone, well, I shouldn't say that. He would have been less likely to be brought to court. The Kabuki machine is what made them take him to court because they've, they're they looking at what they're showing as a deception on their device and a person who's in denial. And their, their explanation would be he's not a candidate for treatment. Therefore, he presents a great risk to the community. But had they just not had a kabuki machine and and he was still not admitting his offense, it could have ended up in the same result. They could have said, you're still in denial and you're not an accept, acceptable candidate for treatment. But the kabuki machine may have had some indirect role in it. But bottom line is, you can't go to treatment after pleading guilty and say, I didn't do nothing. <laughs> and it, this the conditions of your probation are going to tell you that you have to go through with the kabuki machine. And so this would be where we would say, you have to just go through the kabuki machine rigmarole and do your best. And if they tell you you're lying, you're being deceitful or whatever, then you say, no, I'm not. Stick it in your shorts. Well, he couldn't do that, though, because he was he was not uh, the treatment rules for that particular those providers were that a person who won't admit that they did anything is not someone that we can treat. So they terminated him. And therefore, unless yeah. he could come up with another treatment provider that was 
suitable to the supervision authorities. Remember, that's one of the conditions. Geez, it has to be a, an approved treatment provider, not just somebody you go dig out of the on your own volition. He was running out of options at that point. Did I ever tell you that when they told me that I had to do my treatment, they 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 pulled this list off, and the guys got on his desk, and uh, I'll get my my camera pulled up. So the, it's it's on his desk, and he's got this sheet with like, damn it, it keeps changing on me. Um, it uh, so he's got this piece of paper with five or six or seven something uh, providers, and he uh he like very meticulously is like, I'm not telling you which one you should use but i'm just saying that maybe there might be some that will be better for you than others and i was like oh wink wink nod nod and uh so i made sure that i called those two providers of the were a couple suggested to you particularly that might be yes. better okay and one of that. them i called up and oh my god it was going to be it, it was going to be, I, I was going to be a very, very uncomfortable person in there because it was going to be all faith-based and whatnot. And I was going to be a very uncomfortable individual. The next one I, I called and I said, are you going to, this was my first question to him. I said, do you guys like push polygraphs? And they go, well, look, honestly, because they're so expensive, if the polygraph, uh, if it's going to call you to financial hardship, then that means you're not paying us. So we would rather you pay us than the polygraph machine. <laughs> And then there was no any sort of statement of faith or anything of that sort. So I was happy. So I went with that one. So, well, yeah, well, I'm sure you can throw some other crap at me here. So what else you got? Oh, yeah, I'm coming. Well, I was going to ask you about issue number three, where the court denied a continuance. What is a continuance? Well, he needed more time to be ready for his revocation hearing. And the court held that the reliability of Patty's polygraph examination or the veracity of his denial of the crime of conviction were relevant to, to the revocation hearing. Petty was required to attend PFR treatment as directed by his probation officer and treatment provider. It was Petty's denial of any past sexual wrongdoing that stalled his treatment and resulted in the ultimate failure. So therefore, since you failed out of treatment, the courts say all the continuances in the world won't change the fact that you failed. I don't know. I completely agree with that. But they that was the the trial judge's ruling. I, I'm, I'm running out of options on how to, for you to redeem yourself since you are totally Mr. Doom and gloom and we'll find no merit here. So what about, can we, can we, can we find something with number four? Uh, <laughs> well, as the court pointed out, a decision to grant a continuous is discretionary. Well, it will only be disturbed by clear showing that the court abused that discretion. He failed to show that. The court noted, as discussed above, the reliability of the polygraph examinations or the veracity of his denial of the crime of conviction were irrelevant at the revocation hearing. As a result, Petty cannot demonstrate state-induced ineffective assistance of counsel. Got, I think well, there's just one more to go. You've got one shot left, Larry. So how about number five? Well, that was that was a failure on issue number five, he didn't raise that below, and the court said failure to raise that below. The uh, Petty argues the district court did not have authority to impose those post-imprisonment supervision conditions because it did five days after the revocation sentencing, and the, he was Petty was arguing that he'd already been maxed out, and this one gives me the most consternation because the court said, however, even presuming error, Petty fails to demonstrate that it seriously affects the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings, and it and it otherwise represents a miscarriage of justice. If you're putting someone under supervision for three years with very stringent conditions and they do not have the jurisdiction, I think that's a fundamental error there. And I think of all the issues, there may be some appealability on this in terms of he gets out from under the extra uh, supervision, the PFR supervision, when he gets out of prison for serving his time, I think that if there's no authority, he has some shot at relief from the extra supervision. So I give him some hope that on issue number five, he may be able to get some relief. So when it says he failed to raise it below, could you elaborate on that? Like below what? 
in, in the in the trial court when you take something of a oh appeal. oh oh in the lower court yeah. you mean yeah he yeah he did raise it below so the trial court didn't get the opportunity the oh, design, oh oh okay the the I design of the court system is not to give people multiple bites at the apple to think of things that they should have thought of previously kind of you remember when we had the Kansas Supreme Court when the judge when the lawyer said <laughs> well maybe there should be some kind of remand here and the, and he said why would we do that. Right. Why would we give you a chance to do that? Well, there would be an, an, no end to litigation if people could say, whoops, I forgot that. So as a general rule, barring some extraordinary circumstances, if you didn't raise the issue below and give the trial judge a, a chance, the trial judge can rule against you. But if you didn't preserve it below by raising the issue, they, most issues were not raised first time on appeal. There are some exceptions. I continue to say it. one exception would be if the Constitution is if it's a facially unconstitutional statute and you didn't raise that below, I think I'm on reasonably solid ground to say you could raise the constitutional challenge at any stage and the Supreme Court has agreed with me on that. But in terms of most things, you have foreclosed by not raising them below. All right. Um, and then, so finally they said, they also said Petty argues that the district court did not have the authority to impose post-imprisonment supervision because it did so five days after the revocation and sentencing. Petty also argues that the district court lacked authority, you will respect my authority, to impose rules and condition on his post-imprisonment supervision. However, even presuming error, Petty fails to demonstrate that it seriously affects the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of the judicial proceedings or otherwise represents a miscarriage of judge justice. Yeah, that's what I was trying to just go through. I kind of disagree with him on that one. I think if there's no subject matter jurisdiction, if he's already maxed out what he has the authority to do, this issue may gain legs later, but he's got to serve his time because if he files on this now, if I'm an appellate court, I'm going to say, well, you know, you may be dead before this becomes an issue, so bring it back to us later. And when you get closer to being out, when you served your 15 years, let's talk about it then. That would be my reaction. I don't want to do any work now. I don't have to deal with briefing on this when, when it becomes <laughs> a problem for you. You're you're lawfully in prison right now. So right now you're not serving this three years. When when you're serving this three years, let's talk about it. And I just want to circle back to the, because he failed to raise it below. That That's how the whole uh, Smith versus Doe thing came about, isn't it? Because they didn't raise certain conditions in the lower court before it went to the Supreme Court. That is correct. On Smith versus Doe, there was an assumption that just the very nature of imposing something ex post facto, that it would automatically be ruled unconstitutional. And they didn't do their diligent research. It was an arrogance factor. Well, of course they can't do this. That was the attitude of, of, uh, of Doe. And it turned out if they had done their requisite research, they have found out there was a Supreme Court decision in Kennedy Mendoza Martinez versus Mendoza Martinez in 1963 that said a regulatory scheme can be imposed retroactively. And they would have been prepared for that argument, but they stipulated that all the stuff that they shouldn't have stipulated to, they did their summary judgment. And everything that the state would have argued was assumed valid. And that's what people continue to misunderstand. Even attorneys out there, they promote the myth that it's totally wrong. If you go, If you do summary judgment, Every defense that was not tried and tested and aired in open court is presumed true. So if the state of Alaska says the recidivism is frightening and high, that's what we're going to argue. And you say, judge, go ahead and let's go forward summary judgment. No need to have a trial. Then the decision has to be made assuming that recidivism is frightening and high. Now, the only way to work around that is the trial judge can say, no, I am not going to grant summary judgment because I'm not ready to conclude that summary judge, that uh, that there's no justiciable material dispute of any facts. I'm looking at the state's argument. They're saying that recidivism is frighteningly high, and I'm going to say that we have a trial on that, because I don't know that to be true. But if the parties are willing to stipulate that recidivism is frighteningly high, then you can't be mad when the court has <laughs> that. Uh, the parties agree with facts. It's kind of like if you agree about the property line on your property. The court's not going to say, well, you know, I kind of feel like there might be something. I'm going to hire my own surveyor. We're going to go out there. If you guys agree where the boundary is, that's the boundary, even if it's wrong. Right. <sighs> okay. 
uh, any final thoughts on this before we close this part down? No, but I know that there's just people just breaking out in laughter in chat now, right? <laughs> uh, they were a little while ago. It's very quiet in there now. I, uh, so. I, you, you have squelched all of their, their conversations, Larry. We should I'm start sorry. talking about people being convicted of uh, certain kinds of images and get that all brought up again. That was a very popular subject. It was. We got we got more views than we've had on recent episodes. Uh, do you want to do this uh, last letter thing, or do you want to uh, close it out for the night? So, well, let me go ahead and tease what we're going to be doing very soon in the next episode or two. Okay. We've got we've got uh, what I consider a great question that I snarled about when I first got it, and we had too much already lined up for tonight. But we're going to be talking about a person who's in our favorite facility over in Fort Leavenworth, who is very creative and energetic with thinking things through very carefully, maybe even overthinking them. And he wants to know about registering when he gets released from the military custody in Fort Leavenworth and journeys to North Carolina. Is he going to be in violation if he doesn't get there within three days? And we're going to, we're going to unpack that and possibly even have, have uh, Ashley back, who's been Okay. What was she with us two or three weeks ago? Uh, when we oh my did God! It was longer than that now. Not not Ashley, uh, the attorney, but Ashley, the spouse. I know. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it was at least four weeks ago. Has that been that long? Yes, so, it has. Well, we're going to possibly have have her back. She does amazing in terms of transcribing questions and writing up stuff, and and he's a gifted writer for sure. And, and like I say, he may be overthinking this a little bit. So we're gonna we're gonna cover that either on episode two fifty or two fifty one. Very good. All right. Um, so just we'll uh, close things out, won't we? Well, how many minutes do we have left? We are at 55 minutes. So we do have time, I think, to do it. But we can kick it back if you want to. So, well, go ahead and grab it. I'll take a look at it. I've already forgot what, it's, what it says, but let's take a look well, at it. Shoot, I don't. Sir, I'm going to be reading it cold, Larry. But well, I, I will do it. All right, well, here comes a question to close out the show. It says, Dear Narsal, my name is Michael, and I fully understand you're unable to give me legal advice, and that's just ducky. What I'm writing in regards to is an article you posted uh, a few issues ago regarding the case of John Doe's 1 through 9 in the state of Tennessee. See, back in 2013, I was forced into a plea agreement for 152 months, 12 years, 8 months, for a crime I didn't commit. But either way, I thought that one, that once I was released, I could interstate compact from Kansas to my home state of Tennessee, do my registration and my other parole priorities, and that'd be it. I was sadly mistaken. I'm now within 12 to 18 months of my release, and I find out that I will have lifetime uh, post-release that I was entirely unaware of and blindsided by. Now to the reason I'm troubling you, amazing people, is I need some help sent my way. For Kansas lifetime post-release means that anytime I'm picked up for anything, even as small as something like my attitude or tone of voice, I'd be hit with a parole violation uh, and transported 1,400 miles from my house in Tennessee all the way back to Kansas for no less than 90 days. I'd be forced to find my way uh, all the way back home. So, oh, that's interesting. So, Go ahead. Uh, well, the reason I put this in here is because this is an example of a couple things. The prison grapevine of misinformation and a person who's overly thinking something. He's just flat out wrong on all this stuff. Uh, not, okay. just, not even close. I mean, the lifetime supervision, I'm taking that at face value, that, that they sprung that on him at the last minute. Maybe he didn't know about it at the time he, he was originally sentenced. That I'm not dealing with. But in terms of the violation, if he's on interstate compact, Everything is exactly the way we've talked about on previous episodes. The fact of the matter is, Kansas will not be able to do anything unless Tennessee refers him to Kansas. They start the process by sending a notice of violation to Kansas. And there has to be a, a violation that's articulatable. Talking to someone wrong tone of, tone of voice, I have never seen a list of probation conditions that includes that. <laughs> right? I have not seen that in my years in this business. So he 
if he were to have an encounter with law enforcement in Tennessee, it would rise to the level. Here's the standard, folks. They notify the sending state, in this case Kansas, of violations that are in the packet of conditions that were sent to them and of any conditions that they added when he got to Tennessee, theoretically, if he makes it to Tennessee. So they would notify Kansas of either or of violations that Kansas sent with him and any conditions they imposed on him. For example, if they gave him a curfew and Kansas didn't impose him a curfew, they would notify him that he's refusing to comply with, with curfew. Kansas would reply back uh, to the report and suggest that they do a variety of things, including initiating a retaking. But that process entitles you to a probable cause hearing. You don't just get picked up in Tennessee and dragged 1,400 miles across the country so that you can find your way back to Tennessee. First of all, you would not be dragged 1,400 miles without some due process. And second of all, if you did get dragged 1,400 miles, you would not be let loose to find your own way back because you would have to recompact again. That would start the process all over again. So if he if he were to have a violation, if if he either waived the probable cause finding in Tennessee and agreed to go back to Kansas and Kansas did not put him in prison, they would have to ask Tennessee to accept him again. He wouldn't just be roaming the streets around and hitchhiking with his thumb out to get back to Tennessee. They would have to formally send him back to Tennessee. So basically, you're wrong on every single thing in terms of how the interstate compact works. And why do you, how do you know, Larry, how can we trust you? Because I used to teach this stuff, and uh, that's one way you know. And I'm still a consultant on issues of interstate compact, not as frequently, but that's how I know. Okay. Um, right. I mean, even someone in chat has claimed that all the things that you have described are true, and they're not just. You're not just going to be abducted by some black government van and a, 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 a little hood put over your face. You're thrown in the car, and then three weeks later, you reappear in Kansas, like. Well, crap, how did I get here? No, it doesn't work that way. Now, he may end up, he may, if, if Tennessee does agree that there was a violation, he could be, be detained, depending on what the arrest and hold authorities are in Tennessee. Some states give their probation officers arrest and hold without a warrant. Some states don't. New Mexico does. I don't think Georgia does. Uh, they have to actually ask the court for a warrant. So depending on the state, he may, he may be put into custody. But until he gets some form of due process he's going to be sitting in a jail in tennessee and he's going to get to decide if he wants to quote waive extradition if they present the wrong process to him or if he wants to agree that he's violated at least one or more of the conditions of supervision and voluntarily return to kansas but he's not going to be abducted in the middle of the night <laughs> i can just see it that would be epic uh, all right. Well, then, uh, so you're not quite as doom and gloom on this particular one. You're not saying it's great, but it's not going to be like what he's describing as far as the doom and gloom effect. Absolutely not. He could end up back in Kansas, but it'll be for something of a more significant nature than a bad attitude. And would he then go, hey, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore? Would he do what? Never mind. It was a bad joke. I thought you would get it. The movie came out in your youth, man. Did you ever see The Wizard of Oz? Yes, yes, I did. Okay. That was in that was in nineteen thirty seven or something like that. Somewhere in that ballpark, right? I figured you would get the joke because uh, Dorothy goes, "I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto." So never mind. All right, well, Larry, I sincerely, 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 I hope that you have a wonderful holiday time, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, however, you, whatever you want to celebrate. I wish you the very best of a holiday season. I hope that you stay warm because it's going to be freaking cold over here on the East Coast. And I hope that everyone stays warm and comfy and you have lots of yummy food and great presents and some nice time off, spend time with friends and family and do all those things that are really actually the important things in life. Well, thank you so much. And uh, weren't you going to ask me how long I plan to stay? Oh, crap. I forgot. Hey, man. Um, so if I ask you this question, you're already going to have the answer. But uh, so... Uh, how long do you plan to, to stay here? How much longer are you planning to stay? A uh, long time. Get used to me. Maybe someday you people will learn. And after they learn, then, uh, then we can all go home. <laughs>
I just couldn't resist when I saw that clip of Barney saying, uh, so maybe someday you people will learn. I said, that's too good. We have to find a way to use that. So, yes, I'm going to stay until you people learn or until I can't do it anymore. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that you're going to tap out before they learn. You think so? I'm pretty confident. Pretty confident. All righty. Well, all right, my friend. And again, I wish everyone a happy holiday season and appreciate all the people that support the program. And we look forward to seeing you in the new year. Have a great night, Larry. I think we're going to be recording New Year's Eve, maybe. That is very, 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 very possible. So Very cool, man. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Whatever you celebrate, hope it's wonderful for you and your family. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to FYP.